Welcome to Time of My Life with Lawrence Mozafari, and that would be me. I'm a journalist and presenter from London, and this podcast is a fun and thoughtful series of interviews where I speak to remarkable elders with fascinating lives, all to capture their wisdom, anecdotes, and answer some of life's biggest questions from the people who have already lived it. Nick Hewer was, of course, Alan Sugar's right-hand man for ages during The Apprentice, and then he went on to host Channel 4's Countdown. He's now looking to retire and handing over the reins to Anne Robinson in The Weakest Link. And through this chat, he was talking about fair trade fortnight. So I hope you enjoy. I'll be with you straight after this to chat a bit more. But thanks for listening. This is Nick Hewer from uh, Countdown currently and uh, was on The Apprentice. And I'm talking to Lawrence Mozafari about times of my life. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Nick. Absolute pleasure to chat to you. Um, I kind of the big news that's happening at the minute is obviously you're going to be leaving Countdown after a 10 year stint. So first of all, I wanted to ask what's kind of made you make that decision to move on from Countdown? And have you given any advice to your new replacement, Anne Robinson? Well, I am leaving. I'm leaving Countdown in June, although on screen until I think July, I'm not sure. Uh, after 10 years, I'll be in my 10th year, halfway through my term. I did 10 years on The Apprentice. That was quite enough. And uh, 10 years on, on Countdown's enough too, second longest host, as it were. Um, why, why am I packing it in? Reluctantly, because... Um, during countdown, I was sort of shielding because I'm very old. During that time, I suddenly realized that there's something called home life. And I was a bit of a sort of a, a novice to this because I've always been running around. But here I was stuck at home pleasantly and I enjoyed it so much. I suddenly thought, well, why am I doing this at 77 when I really haven't got that much longer to go in truth? And um, I thought this is stupid. So I don't want to die and have on my gravestone, um, he died of greed. So I thought I'd pack it in. Have I spoken to Anne Robbins? I haven't. Uh, believe me, she doesn't need any advice from me. She's a seasoned uh, broadcaster and will take to it, I'm sure, like a duck to water. So she doesn't need any help from me. Uh, if anything, I wish I'd spoken to her before I took it on so that she could have advised me how to do it professionally but I've struggled through it for 10 years and then now I'm off. Well, soon. Looking back across those years, you must've come across some quite interesting words. I wondered what are your, some of your favorite new words that you've discovered for your time on Countdown? You know, Lawrence is a good question because opposite me over in the other side of the studio, we have Susie Dent and she is amazing. And she has taught me so many extraordinary words and where they came from and how they arrived here and you know the etymology of the whole thing and you know the great tragedy of countdown is that when i leave the studio at the end of a day's recording i've forgotten it all and uh, i say nothing and i keep saying to her susie would you please be good enough in your little origins of words those perfectly formed little three or four minute essays would you publish them and then I can buy the book and I can enjoy it all over again. Retention of words at the moment is a bit thin with me. 
No worries at all. I can just I can watch back some countdown on uh, on all four. I'm sure I'll pick them up there. <laughs> no, but I mean, uh, she she's extraordinary and she's wonderful, and I love her to death. And um, but I, I simply can't remember them. Can't, I wish I did. I'd be so educated if I could remember. I mean, this might make the next question a little bit tricky, but um, in a similar vein, I was going to ask, is there any that were too fruity to maybe end up on air? They're a little bit cheeky, but st they stick well, with you at all. fruity one on Monday, <clears throat> and they wouldn't... The Dictionary Corner guest said, oh, I don't know whether I can say this. It's a bit rude. And I said, oh, if it's in the dictionary, we don't mind. And she discussed it quietly with Susie, and Susie said, no, we're not using this one. So there is a word that cannot be used on that countdown, and I don't know what it is because they would oh. tell me. <laughs> no, you'd be shocked. So, so, but we do. We get sort of fart and you know things like that. You know, yes, we get them all pretty much except this one. So I don't know what it is. I'm desperate to find is out it? what this illicit word is now. I'll have to oh, tweet Susie Dent. Yeah, <laughs> I'll let you know if I find out. <laughs> But they're sparing my blushes anyway. I mean, you touched a little bit on it already regarding retirement. Um, I just wondered if you if you thought much about what you kind of want to do with your time in retirement, and you know, perhaps you could have a go at the Mars Singer, but maybe not if you were looking to uh, to chill out a bit. What do you think you'll be doing? Uh, the thing about countdown is that it comes in two year contract cycles, okay, and it's a pretty heavy workload. I mean, it's, it's not that many days a year, 50 days a year or something, but there's sort of space. So there's never a big hole in your diary when you can do what you want. And I thought well, to look at one's diary for two years ahead, that's a big commitment. Now, if something came rolling along that was interesting and not too committing in terms of time, yeah, I'd do it. But the good thing it does for me, it enables me then to really spend a bit more time working for the charities of which I'm patron. Fair Trade is one of them. And I also um, work for Pancreatic Cancer Action and Hope and Homes for Children and Street Child. But right now there's a very interesting program coming up for Fair Trade, which is a wonderful charity. It's about justice. It's about thinking about the other people. P think about the people that make our food, actually produce our food. And this is all about the relationship between you know, fair trade and, and climate change, because the people growing our food in the third world are the people least affecting the climate. It's us rotters in the West with our profligate ways who are causing all this chaos. But I've traveled for, for fair trade. I've been down in, um, in the Leeward Islands to see the bananas being grown, the coffee makers in West Africa and so forth. These people earn nothing. Let's look at bananas. Now then, Lawrence, how much does a bunch of bananas cost you in the supermarket? Uh, well, I shop at Lidl, very, very uh, salubrious. And um, I don't know, they're about 95p normally when I go in there for the bunch I get. Because you just said, I don't know, but probably around. Hmm. This is the point, it's a commodity, okay? And what happens is, you know, in Tesco's, apparently, if no bananas have gone through the, uh, the till in the last five minutes, a bell rings because clearly they're out of uh, uh, stock on the shop floor. So somebody gets a thick ear and is told to go downstairs and bring up more bananas, right? And we, we 
buy them. And when they get a little bit spotty, we throw them away. Oh, no, we can't have that. The guy down, for instance, in St. Lucia, sliding down a volcanic uh, hillside and to get the bananas at exactly the right time, down to the coast, down to the port, onto a banana ship. Um, he can barely afford to feed his children. It's terrible. And we don't know what they cost. Now, fair trade, of course, guarantees him a prize. And there's a premium which goes into the local community. And he's got something to work with. He can plan, you know. And it's the same with the, the you know, the, the, the coffee growers and the cocoa growers. So we have a duty, if there's any decency in the world, to, to think about the people that are, you know, uh, producing our food. And we should be prepared to pay a proper price so that they can have a decent living. Fair play. And I think it's an entirely decent way to conduct one's life. My next question on the topic of fair trade was around what more can we do as individuals to make a tangible impact? Because, you know, something like climate change is so massive and it can feel almost so disconnected when it's, you know, um, something happening halfway around the world. So what would you advise kind of individuals to do that we can make a real, real impact? Buy fair trade products. That's the, mm. that's the truth. Look, somebody said to me 20 years ago, you know what's going to happen, don't you? I said, what is it? They said, the South is coming North. And that's what's happening. That's what all the, 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 the people pouring into Europe, pouring into the North, they can't make it at home, either through war and pestilence, but more likely through just an inability to feed themselves, okay? Now, if we can buy fair trade products, insist on fair trade, bully the supermarkets to stock fair trade products, then they're getting a decent um, um, wage, as it were, for their products, decent price for their products, which enables them to stabilize their lives, plan for the future, and stay at home and stay there, you know? Rather than you know, dumping everything and making a run for the for the boats in Libya, hmm. do you know? What do you think? What part do you think big business has to play in tackling this? Because obviously, consumers is a really really important part of this, um, and how we how we choose to spend our money. But how how do you think big business can really make an impact too? Well, it's it's a terribly difficult problem. This let's just look at the supermarket industry if we can. And I'm no expert on these things, but I've got a fairly reasonable gut instinct about it. There are a limited number of big supermarket chains, okay? They are publicly listed. What does that mean? Their shares are on the market, okay? Um, and what makes their shares go up or down is their level of profitability, okay? They're killing each other for market share. Morrison's is squabbling with Tesco and they're looking at each other and growling and dropping prices and all the rest of it because they've got to keep their share price up, they've got to expand and all the rest of it, okay? So it's a very difficult um, uh, issue because the share price, of course, then the, the big institutions, okay? The, the pension funds, for instance, move their money around maybe chasing profitability and wanting to make money on the share price and stability and all the other things, right? Nobody's caring about the producer. It's up to people like you and me to say, enough, we must buy fair trade. And if I went into a supermarket not that long ago, um, and it was to do with coffee, and there was um, 
coffee, uh, a brand, well-known on the high street for their coffee shops, who pay, who pay precious little tax, all right? Um, where was fair trade? It wasn't there. I thought, what is going on here? Here's an, a, a, a company that doesn't pay its taxes on the shelves, and people will buy it because it's a well-known brand. There's a brand awareness and all the rest. And I thought, Jesus, I'm sick of this. And um, I wiped off a letter to the chairman of that particular uh, um, uh, supermarket chain and never heard a word. That's the tragedy of it. It's up to the consumer to get a conscience. Tricky, tricky, definitely tricky. When I think when the times are tighter and I think we're in a pandemic and people are losing work and stuff, making that decision for fair trade products is going to be harder. I think when people are doing such, um, having tougher lives, but definitely it's so important to to make that distinction and to put, you know, speak with your speak with your wallet as such, because as you say, people won't, the companies won't change unless we unless we do something individually. Yeah. So the youngsters in the schools know all about fair trade and youngsters, God bless them, have a great sense of decency and fair play. As one grows older, of course, there are other pressures, you know, um, and we've got to ensure that the youngsters, as they grow old, hang on to that fair trade message. And uh, so there we are. I think there's a there's a wide awareness of fair trade. Um, you know, the price differential is minimal. The coffee's great. We always, I will not buy anything other than fair trade at, uh, in the supermarket or when it comes to either chocolate or, or coffee. You've had a really successful career in business and obviously, you know, extended time on The Apprentice. I wondered um, if you have any tips or advice, perhaps, for those that might be looking to start up their own business, um, especially in the wake of the pandemic, if they've been furloughed or they've had a job change or something like that or lost work. Is there any tips from your experience that you'd offer? For sort of starting up in in the world we're in now yeah you know don't shout at me but there's <laughs> probably no better time to start do you know that okay no better yeah. time to think of all the people in their 50s for instance who've been furloughed and laid off all right here they are and they've got say 30 years experience all right their mates who've also been laid, laid off in the same business in the same company perhaps we're all saying, oh, what are we going to do? Nobody's going to employ us because, you know, we're too old and too expensive. Um, and I say, now, hold on, this may be the moment, this may be your opportunity. And I remember thinking back to a terribly hard time, maybe kind of 40 years ago, 30 years ago, Major Mine was made redundant and some of his mates, they were in the brewing business. And... Uh, they got together, they formed a consultancy, they did incredibly well because they started up their own uh, business, hired an office, put the word out and they were really successful. Now is the time. It doesn't have to be in the consultancy business. What about that young chap over there that's um, been laid off? Oh, he loves his motorbikes. Start servicing motorbikes. Do something that you know a lot about. And business is not complicated. That's why The Apprentice was such a great hit because it, it unmasked what business really is all about. It, it, it drew the veil of terror away and you know exposed the fact, pretty basic. You make something or do something um, and sell it um, for more than it costs you to make it. That's it, you know? Now, there are all sorts of subsets to that, but 
now is the time. So don't be, um, you know, don't be frightened. I say to people, have a go. And actually the government, this government, oh dear. But <laughs> at least the Chancellor, I think has done great stuff and rescued a lot of small businesses. And um, there we are. I'm not, and I'm not underplaying the fact that it's pretty tough on a lot of people. I accept, mm. I accept that. But sit down and think about it. Now might be the time to do it yourself. And that's what I did. I swore I would be unsackable by the age of 30 because I would own and control that which I was doing. And that's what I did. You, you had your own podcast, um, Local to Global, from what I understand was kind of like UK businesses trying to move up to a more global scale. Um, I wondered if there was any top tips or anything you, you kind of amassed from that podcast about businesses that are looking to explore on a more global scale, especially in the wake of Brexit. Is there anything you kind of, any gems you got from yeah. there? I did a, a little podcast um, with companies that were seeking to expand and I enjoyed it so much. It was for the Department of uh, International Trade. There were a couple of them, I tell you. One was called Just Three Words or Only Three Words. I should know, shouldn't I? What's it called? <laughs> Hold on. What Three Words? Okay. Now, one of them was called What Three Words. And I met the guy who started it up. It was absolutely brilliant. And you know that where you're sitting on that chair, if uh, you download What Three Words, okay, it will give you three words because they have divided up the world into, I think it was nine billion three meter square segments and given three words to that three meters, okay? So you're on top of a mountain, you've just slid down and broken your leg, you're on your own, it's snowing, and you think, what am I gonna do? Well, I'll tell you what you do, you ring the emergency services and they say, where are you? And you say, I'm on Snowden. And they say, but where? And then you give them those three words and they know to within three meters square where you are, all right? Now, this was just starting off when I did that podcast. Today, it's everywhere. It's amazing. And the applications are extraordinary. Here we go. Um, somebody running a railway company. One of the rails is a bit wonky, okay? Instead of saying, or you break down on the motorway, all right? and you ring up the AA and they say, where are you? You, you say, well, I'm on the M1. Yeah, but where? <laughs> and you give them those, what, three words. You give them the three words. They know exactly where you are. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. really good. A lot, one, a lot simpler than longitude and latitude in trying to work all that out. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. The other company I loved, they make fridges. And when um, the electricity goes off, because right, there's a power cut, because it happens to, happens to be in Honduras or Sierra Leone or somewhere where there's a bit of a dodgy uh, power supply. Um, it, it lasts for days until they can reconnect. In other words, think about vaccines these days, okay? You've got to keep them chilled, really. Um, these fridges just keep going. Wonderful. So these international, if you've got a... If you've got a a great product and you market it properly the world will come to you um obviously can't speak to you without touching on the apprentice uh you worked with sir alan sugar for a for a long time i wondered are you two are you two still friends are you still stay in touch and, and yeah, what's he like to work with him 
great actually. He's down in Australia, did an Australian apprentice. Um, and um, I still watch it. I, I've been out of that. I did 10 years. I think I've probably been out of that about five years. It was a great experience. I loved it. It's a great program. People say, oh, where do they find those idiots? And the point is, the people who say that are missing the point completely. And they're the stupid ones because it's all about an audience saying, I could do better than that. And then they chat to their mates about it and all the rest of it. It's, it's first of all, they're not that stupid, the people on the show, let me tell you, it's very, very hard and they're given no time and it's all a panic. And, and the winners are very bright indeed. But yes, of course there are mistakes and the producers love it, okay? But it's about teaching people about business in an entertaining way, which is why it pulls in millions of people every day, every time it's on, every episode. And um, it keeps rolling, coming into year 16. Not bad, eh? Yeah, definitely. Um, you, obviously, you've seen so many different kinds of business people come and go through that time. I wonder, do you think there's a, a formula to success? I think it's focus. Yeah. That's the thing I observed. Uh, Lord Sugar over many years in business. First of all, he had impeccable timing. He knew exactly when to launch a product, when not to launch it, when to pull out of a market, pull out of a particular market or a product market, but also um, focus. He would never be distracted. What happens is people, you know, they that they invent or something and then, oh, they're, you know, somebody says, what about this, what about that, why don't we go? and they get distracted and charge off in different directions. So focus, that apparently, from my observation, is the key thing, and hard work. I guess you were such a close advisor to Sir Adam for all that time. I wondered, looking back, is what would you say is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? I think in this media world that you're in, and I'm in, sort of, um, keep your feet on the ground, don't get carried away. Okay. Be honest. Um, in business, it's focus and be honest. Look after your staff. Um, and when times are hard, it's you who takes the pay cut before you start laying people off. Okay, you have a responsibility. Play it, play it straight, play it decent. I think you kind of had a career change in a sense you know from the from the PR world to, to moving on to presenting on screen from your own career change is there any advice you give to others that are perhaps considering a career change in their own in their own field or in their own lives well do something that you really want to do that's that's the thing it, you, do something you like I think that's the most important it's all about sort of personal happiness isn't it and contentment you know, if you like doing what you're doing, you're more likely to make a success of it. If you hate getting up in the morning and trailing off to the office to do something you don't want to do, um, then it's very difficult to, you know, work up the enthusiasm, energy, and all the rest of it um, to do it well. People spot it, don't they? You know, if you're not enjoying it, you don't want to do it really. Um, well, find something you really do want to do. Definitely. I know it's that famous saying, do something you enjoy and you never work a day in your life. I didn't enjoy PR very much, in truth, um, but um, I stuck at it. Is there anything looking back you, you, you would like to have done differently from 
I guess from that career change or from from your time? I think that I would count myself to be very lucky, to, in all honesty, very lucky. I was lucky in the PR business in that I was recruited after a sort of desultory sort of time as a law student messing around, went to London, got hired by a very good guy who ran a PR company, which I, and I bought him out. Um, and he gave me a very, very good training. He was a very straightforward, good guy. Um, and um, very honest in as much as, you know, he gave me a directorship when he promised he would. And he gave me a shareholding parity when he said he would. And he enabled me to buy him out. Um, now, that was a very, very good break because there aren't many bosses like that, you know? Not that I've come across anyway, but he was remarkable. Then I was able to sell that business, was about to retire when I was 60, and um, got picked up by Alan Sugar, for whom I had acted on the PR side, um, who dragged me into um, The Apprentice, which was fortunate, wasn't it? And then I swept into a number of other things. I fronted documentaries and all sorts of things. And then I got, amazingly, approached to do Countdown, thinking, what on earth is this program? I've never seen it, because I was working all the time. Did that for 10 years. How lucky is that? So here I am at the age of 77 yesterday. Um, oh, was it your birthday yesterday? Birthday yesterday, 77. Oh, happy, happy, happy birthday for yesterday. And um, now I'm wondering what to do. and hoping I'm not going to be bored. I've just got a puppy which was a stupid thing to do um <laughs> oh what kind of dog did you get it's a little labrador uh, puppy called molly that i'm trying to train the hardest thing i've ever done <laughs> so we're sending her away to finishing school uh, at the end of the month so that they can actually tell her to sit down and and and, and not frankly make a mess everywhere it sounds like sounds like a very fun plan to me training a training a Labrador called Molly. Um, I was looking no, looking. Never do. <laughs> it's impossible. We've got a Lakeland Terrier, uh, my family's home, and he's, he just won't won't be trained at all. Won't be told what to do. Doesn't like to play fetch, which is quite a quite a tricky one for a dog. Uh, he'll go get it, but won't give it back. Nightmare. I guess looking back through your time, how how do you think the world has changed the most throughout your life? And is there anything that kind of like really sits with you that in terms of how the world has changed well i think it's it's obviously more frantic i mean mm. the internet is quite extraordinary i mean it's just we would never have dreamt that such a thing would be possible when i was a young a young kid you know um i think the world and it's an, over a very brief time maybe eight years or something has turned into a really rather an unpleasant place. It's an unhappy world at the moment. I'm not talking only about the absolutely cataclysmic approach of climate chaos, but I'm talking about this severe swing to the right throughout the world, dictatorships, nationalism, populism. These are all very bad things. And somehow the world has got so frantic it's almost consuming itself. There's a sort of a, uh, a feeling that everybody is individually very important. Um, uh, there's a sort of 
the, the, the growth of the celebrity culture, I think is horrible, uh, horrible. Um, it breeds amongst young people a desire for fame and money and all the rest of it. So people behave in more and more extreme ways in order to get famous and rich and get the prettiest girl and, and, and the most money and the flashiest car without actually having work to do it. People think, you know, they have a right to be famous and they'll kill to get it. So I think that's a very disheartening um, and widespread sort of disease, if you like. Uh, we're not thinking enough about those less fortunate than ourselves, which brings me back to the fair trade sort of argument. Um, yeah, I think the American century was a short one. I think now it's going to be the, the Asian century through not only hard work, um, but also a, a totalitarian system where people do as they're told or else. Um, so I'm afraid that my generation, which was the golden generation of all generations, because we had full employment, we had health, we had therefore money, uh, we had travel, we had all of these things. And I'm afraid that our children, and particularly our grandchildren in my age group, we've left them a bit of a rotten lot. And for that, I guess we should apologize. They say like the, the COVID generation are going to be some of the, the hardest hit. I think sometimes I feel quite optimistic for younger generations that I meet because they're so conscientious and they think they feel to me more conscientious than my peers when I was that age in terms of, you know, whether it's, um, you know, being mindful about climate change or it's about diversity and Black Lives Matter or it's about, you know, LGBTQ rights or, you know, the Me Too movement. I think sometimes they're so maybe because the world is more politically charged or maybe because because of the internet everyone being so connected but I, th I feel my you know my gut feeling is that young people are more engaged and more conscientious than perhaps they were in the past so that makes me hopeful at least for a better tomorrow you're right actually on that spread of issues mm. what, I, what i don't think uh, you're right is that my generation when i was young we were very 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 politically aware not on those individual issues, but from a political, governmental and opposition thing. So when I was young, in my late teens, early 20s, you know, we, we, we were fascinated by American politics, by European politics, by Russia, uh, by UK politics. We were much more engaged, but not in those subsets of, you know, Me Too, race were we i think i think we were i think we were aware of the harm that colonialism had had done you know the damage that that had done i listened to a program the other day about india an incredibly articulate indian commentator talking about how the british really unaware of the damage that britain had done to india when they moved in to that rich and diverse and talented and educated country and stripped it all away. We all think, I grew up thinking, ah, the Indian subcontinent loves the Brits. We gave them education. Not true. Hmm. I think possibly the millennials 
are more aware and passionate about their issues. Um, if they could take, <laughs> this is going to disappoint you, Lawrence. Um, <laughs> if they could take the whining tone out of their pleas, it, they'd be more effective. I mean, I guess everyone loves the bash millennials. I think more like Gen Y, Gen Z, and I think future, future, future further facing, I guess. I don't know. I think I'm a big believer in debate and and talking. I think I feel a little bit when the conversations come to these heavier topics that I'm very, very wary of echo chambers, for instance. And I think there's definitely, yeah. uh, I think there's definitely a risk where people are so dogged in their views they're unwilling to even engage the other side and I think that's where you can end up in you know an echo chamber on either side of the argument where you're not embracing other opinions and perhaps trying to come to some sort of agreement to move forward I think the internet uh, exacerbates that, unfortunately on a more positive note what kind of thing makes you happiest and what do you what would you say is the best way to achieve happiness with all, all the all the misery going on in the world that we've, we've touched on there you know what would you say is a, is a key to a happy life and achieving happiness it's a good question, and I'm not sure there's a simple answer to it. Many people would say family, family, and I think there must be a great deal in that. I was not a success in that uh, area, um, which brought unhappiness for sure. So I missed out on that one. Um, I, I think health. Um, being at peace with one's own set of values uh, and being true to oneself. I don't want to, you know, turn this into some sort of philosophical thing because I don't know enough about it. To be quite <laughs> well, you're going to love my next question, which is, is my final question um, and is one that we ask everybody that comes onto the podcast. And it doesn't have to be big and mm. philosophical, but from, you know, just from your perspective, it, the final question we ask everybody is what's the meaning of life from 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 having lived life and having lived a, a fruitful and varied life, what what do you think is would you say is the meaning of life? Yeah, um, I think that um, if Mr. Covid came strolling through the door right now, which I I hope I could see him off because I've had my AstraZeneca shot. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> um, well, I've had one. Um, if he came I, uh, and got me. All right. Would I feel cheated? I wouldn't, actually, because I've been very lucky. But the luck turned, in a way, when I sold my business. Up to that point, life was a struggle. Um, but over the last, I suppose, let's have a look. I sold my business in 97 and carried on. But 97, I don't know how many years that is, but um, that's when it all turned because the pressure was off, okay? I, I wasn't pressured on The Apprentice. I'm being pressured on camera. Um, it, 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 it added to my pension, so I'm not struggling. Um, so in answer to your question, um, to be able to die, knowing that you're dying and be happy to go is the is the best the best way to answer the question you know to go thinking that was fun yeah. but i'm i'm fine without any religious overtones by the way mm. um i'm i'm happy to to go now without any regrets and i think i did my bit 
that that would be good. My mum was like that. My father, on the other hand, was frightened. My mother wasn't frightened at all. They relaxed. Um, so that that's it. So the meaning of life is to have a happy death. How about that? Fabulous stuff, Nick. Not much else to, to add to that apart from to thank you for your time. Enjoy bringing up this this new puppy, um, Molly, and enjoy the rest of your time on, on Countdown to you till you're off screen. If you fancy putting in a good word with Sir Alan Sugar about popping in the podcast, do let me know. <laughs> but thanks so much for your time. Hey, and, um, he's ah. still in Australia. As soon as he lands, I'll give him your phone number. <laughs> thanks so much. All right, cheers, Nick, right. And, uh, and take care. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast has been a long, long time coming. And finally, I'm so glad to have it out in the world. At one stage, I thought it might never happen, but I'm really, really glad to get there. I'm certainly missing the slick production team from behind the scenes and obsessed with Peaky Blinders. Um, but yeah, bear with me while I find my way through the podcasting world in terms of editing myself. If you enjoyed this podcast or found it helpful or entertaining, I would massively appreciate if you could leave me a positive review on your podcast provider of choice because I know it really does help in terms of the rankings and helping other people discover it. Or maybe you might want to share it with your friends or family or someone you think might benefit from it or enjoy it. If you want to stay in touch with me about future episodes of the podcast or people you'd love to hear interviewed, then you can find me on Instagram at Lawrence Mozafari or on Twitter with at Lawrence underscore Moza. Or you can find my Facebook page if you search for Lawrence Mozafari Journalist. My incredible intro music and backing track, which you can hear right now, is made by a very good friend of mine, Joshua Ferreira. He's a multi-instrumentalist and music producer, and he's in a very good folk cover band too, and they're called The Chaps. Um, they use live instruments to play the biggest dance UK garage and club classics you've ever heard. And once you've heard uh, an Ibiza anthem mixed in as a, in a folk remix, trust me, you can never go back. They're such a good laugh to watch live. You can hear more of Josh's music by searching for Joshua Ferreira Music on SoundCloud, or check out thechapsband.com. And if you'd like to support the production of this podcast, please head to co-fi.com slash Lawrence Mozafari. That's ko-fi.com slash Lawrence Mozafari. Thanks again. Thank you so, so much for listening. Stay safe and be lucky. Good morning, Nick. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, really, really Hold good. On a let me just, let me just um, how, do I, how do I blow you up? Blow me up. Uh <laughs> <laughs>